Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to the Sydney Writers' Centre in Wilson's Point. I'm Rose Powell and I'm joined today by Richard Gill, who's here to talk to us about his memoir. Richard is one of Australia's most well-known and best-loved music advocates and experts, and he's here today to tell us about his first book. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. In a nutshell, what is Give Me Excess of it about? <laughs> in a nutshell, it's a memoir. Yeah. Um, initially, it was going to be an autobiography. But it's not really, while it has elements of autobiography about it, I decided a memoir was a better form because it meant I could jump around. And it meant I could start where I am now, for example, and then move back to childhood. And as I went through various phases to jump anywhere I wanted to without feeling that I had to stick to a timeline. Tell me about that process of trying to fit a life into a book. Was it hard to work out? what made it in and what didn't, or where to start the story? No, that wasn't hard. I wrote well over the number of words, and in fact, the book is about 140,000 words, I think, roughly, and I would have probably hit close to the 200,000 mark. But I had a very good editor, a lady called Sybil Nolden in Melbourne, and this is my first book. So I said to her, just do what you have to do. You know, you've edited lots of books. I've been given you by Pan Macmillan. They wouldn't have given you the job had they not thought you were good at doing it. I trust you completely. Just go ahead. So I wasn't at all precious about what was left in or what was left out because I'm not the reader. And Sybil has a great experience with this. So occasionally I'd say, I'll oh, pee that way because that was a good story. But she said, look, you've got so many other good stories that one more is not going to matter. So what was in and what was out, I keep thinking about things I've left out. So but I don't think anyone wants to read two-volume memoir. No, probably not. <laughs> when, when did you decide to write the memoir? When I was asked. Okay. I didn't ever think about it until Pan Macmillan asked me. And it was the result of um, Tom Gilliatt at Pan Macmillan uh, seeing my TEDx talk. And he said, you should write your uh, memoir. A huge theme in the memoir is music. Is it hard to write about, to write about music? It's very hard to write about music because you really... You know, you talk about music in its own terms. And the way we feel about music is subjective. So, and that's not measurable. The things that are measurable in music are things like scales and keys and instruments. You can say, that's a trumpet, this is in D major, this is in 3-4. But that information isn't endlessly interesting. What is interesting about music is the effect that it has on people 
and why people find music interesting. And you know that music, for example, with children is something which obsesses them. Most of them have some sort of system whereby they play music. They've got their things in their ears or their iPads or whatever they have or their iPod or whatever it might be playing music. So, and I spend an enormous amount of my time talking about music, which is almost a contradiction in terms. But what is interesting is I have found that people respond to having things explained about the music, that there are things in the music that you don't necessarily hear uh, on first, second, or even third hearing. And it's, it's rather like um, a well-written novel or a well-written play. Shakespeare constantly reveals new things. Sheridan, Byron, Tennyson, Wordsworth, David Malouf, T.S. Eliot. Each time you read, you find new things. And music operates like that. A lot of good music operates like that. I guess we're looking at a generation now that's been brought up on Britney Spears, Spice Girls, Gangnam Style. For people who haven't experienced classical music before, how would you entice them into listening to it? How would you explain the value of it to them? You can't do it. Um, well, you can, for example, with our Discovery series that we run with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, or in Melbourne, a series called Ears Wide Open, where we invite adults to come along and I explain certain aspects of the music. That can sometimes help people get the point. But there is no substitute for genuine, structured, sequential music education. And that's how you do it. And it's not just about saying classical music. It's about music generally. Because really, there are two types of music. Good music and bad music. And it doesn't matter whether it's good rock or bad rock or good hip-hop or bad hip-hop. It's good and bad. And, again, those judgments are subjective. But the key to understanding any music is to get to the child as early as possible. And that's true in all learning. If, for example, you had an, an older person, perhaps an adult 35, who had little to no interaction with good music, especially good classical music, where would you recommend they start? They start with us, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and they come to our Discovery Series, or if they're in Melbourne, they come to Ears Wide Open, or if they live in the rest of the country, then they fly over here. So that's where we would recommend they start, because that's a a non-threatening, easy environment with an orchestra on stage right behind me, and I can talk about the music and engage the audiences and, and the feedback we get from those audiences is they really love it. So it's a good starting point. And then they can follow that up by visits to the opera house and go down to Long Point. And if someone wanted to start exploring classical music on their own perhaps, which composer would you recommend they begin with? That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, there are so many good DVDs now of orchestras working and operas so sometimes rather than say a composer it might be better to say why don't you try a symphony of Mozart and Brahms and Beethoven which you can buy on DVD and watch the orchestras play them that's just as interesting watching is, the visual is often as interesting as the oral or say most people know something from Carmen 
grab a DVD of Calm and have a look at that. So, and again, it requires work. Anything worth having requires work. And that's the most difficult thing with education these days, is that we work with children who are instant gratifiers. They want things instantly. They SMS, it's instant. They um, do things on their iPods and Facebook, it's instant. So the concept of searching for knowledge and taking time with knowledge is something we need to instill in these children. So the answer to the question is, it's a long process. It's not something that is going to happen instantly or immediately. In your book, you talk about, I guess, your, your childhood that was full of music. It was you know, always naturally a part of you. What are the moments that stand out from your childhood and youth, the musical moments that helped you work out this was what you wanted to do forever? Uh, certainly church. There's no question about that. Although I'm no longer a practicing Catholic, the, the Catholic Mass in the 1940s was in Latin, and there was incense and bells and smells and priest investments and the altar was at the back of the church, so to speak. Like, you know, you didn't actually see inside the tabernacle and there was a lot of mystery with the chalice and the water and the wine and all that sort of stuff. So that was theatre. To me, that was real theatre. And that, for me, I think was the beginning. That was the, the turning point. And that's where I found the love of singing because I love to sing the hymns and love to sing the chant. In your book you wrote that even though you're no longer part of a church, there is one God for you and that's Bach. And you also wrote that with the uh, that while some of the Catholic education system and Catholic people in your life were a little harsh, that you didn't begrudge them that because they were living in a world that had little grasp, living in a, a, a way that had little grasp on reality. How do you think music changes the reality in which we live? I think, I don't know whether, I don't know whether music changes a reality but what it does do is give you the capacity to think differently about reality so what music does is take your mind to the abstract and of all the arts music is the most abstract so it is meaningless it has no meaning in and of itself it doesn't describe so when you listening to music, the imagination can run right. Even when it's opera, where on the stage, characters are being represented by music and all sorts of things are happening, it's still, the imagination can still work at a, a very, very different rate from, say, a drama or observing a painting or watching a dance. So that's why I place music at the top of the arts food chain. So as for a reality... I think you have to say, I would say, music is its own reality and you have to find that reality by coming to the music. Okay. When you were writing, were you listening to music? No, I never listened to music. Very, I rarely, rarely listen okay. to music. I read scores. I mean, I listen to something for a specific purpose, but now we, are, we have music everywhere. There's music in transport. There are people sitting next to you on the bus or the train or the tram playing music, often you know, interrupting thought. So I don't see music as an all-day commodity. So my, my best time with music is reading scores. 
I love reading scores and trying to hear the score in my head. Tell me a little about the conducting process. I think for a lot of people who are watching, it looks like it's this wonderful world all of its own. Tell me about what it's like to do that. Um, it's very scary and it is a sort of a wonderful world of its own. It's the most difficult thing to do, I think, and the most difficult thing to persuade musicians to come to your point of view, and all of those musicians have a point of view, or not, but you have to convince them that what you're doing is the way to go. And so what I try to do is to hold on to the integrity of the music as far as possible and remove me from the equation. It's not what I think about the music. It's more about what is in the music that I haven't found yet. What is there in that music that we're looking for? That's my approach. Okay. In your book you wrote that the word career feels alien to you and that you seem to be wandering. How do you take a life like that and put it onto paper, especially if someone who hasn't written before? Well, um, I've never sought a career in the sense, you know, I must have a career. I've just gone from place to place, from, from thing to thing. And so I guess it's just that that was an easy thing to do because there were so many things that I've done, so many different things that I've done. It was just remembering the order in which I did them, more or less. And obviously when I was writing the book, I didn't remember all of it because I keep thinking, oh, I didn't talk about that or that didn't come out or whatever. You mentioned you chose your memoir and then an autobiography so you could jump around. What's the core of your memoir to you? What's the, the emotional...? I think the heart of the memoir uh, is about music and its power in education because I talk quite strongly about education and I talk quite strongly about how I think we're failing in Australian education as part of the fact that the government's talking about doing... And I applaud the fact that the government is trying to do something about it. But you'll notice I talk about standardised testing and NAPLA, and I think that's a complete waste of time. So there are all sorts of things we need to fix about education in this country, and one of them is acknowledging teachers. And I really believe that's the crux of it, because we really don't... I don't think we value teachers as we should. I understand, at least from my own experience, that music is only compulsory years 7 and 8, which is quite late, that's 13, 14. How would you like to see music taught? My view is that music should be mandatory in from kindergarten. And if we had music mandatory at the kindergarten level, you would have children at the age of 12 being able to sit for the current high school certificate examination in music. Now, that's just a benchmark. It doesn't say anything about what they might know about music, but it does say that the mind of a child is capable of extraordinary things musically, capable of remembering an enormous amount of musical information. And that requires focus and listening. And that focus and listening transfers to all other areas of learning. So that's why I would see it as mandatory. So we're talking about you know, a group of 30, five-year-olds. 
is it that they would sit and listen all together? Because it can be hard to even get them in the same room. No, they, they listen. Of course they listen, but they don't listen to music. They make music. The singing, of in, the, singing the playing of instruments, the writing of music, the improvising to instruments, the improvising of singing, it's active. We don't... I'm not advocating that you give five-year-olds a listening program. Of course they need to listen to music, but the younger the child, the more engagement they need with the music. And that comes from singing, moving, and playing instruments. And the moving is vital. When you were writing the book, what was it like to try and translate decades of love for a complicated abstract art form into something that would be accessible for people who perhaps didn't have a strong background in music or had never really talked about their love of music much. Tom Gillies at Pam said, talk about music, but talk about it as if you're talking to the layman. Don't talk it at, you know, in, a, in a way that the ordinary reader won't get. And I've, I think I've tried to do that. I've tried to, when I'm explaining a musical things, I try to talk about it in very simple terms without patronising the, uh, the layman, but at the same time trying to get the point across. When you were writing it, was that difficult not to be able to talk, I guess, to the, the point of your expertise? Was it challenging to try and make it as accessible as the book, as the book is? Well, yes, it, it was, and I think that's good. I think it's, it's always good to be challenged about your thought. And I think it's always good to um, reassess what you're saying. And it's always good to say, okay, I need to be able to explain this to someone in terms that they're going to understand without having the advantage of a conversation. So I think that's a good thing to do. In the book, you share a lot of different experiences with music. There was one where the score for an aria went missing. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. That was very scary. I was conducting Turandot um, for Opera Australia, and I was then Australian Opera, and um, I turned over the page for the aria, and it wasn't there. I have no idea how that happened. I have suspicions, obviously but I have no idea how that happened. But the entire aria was, had been lifted from the score. And it wasn't loose. It wasn't as if it was um, a loose-leaf score or anything like that. The score was bound, and it's a big, thick score, too. And we're not talking about a little book like that. We're talking about a, a significant score. So it was an incredibly frightening moment. But I survived. It really gave a lot of insight into the, the process of conducting because it often looks so organic and natural. I, I, mentioned, I remember that you said that Leona Mitchell, the yes. singer in question, was mm. quite nervous about going flat. Yes. How much do you rely on the written music as you're conducting? Because it would have been a score that you knew extremely well. How much of it's off the, off the score and how much of it's... It's somewhere, it sits somewhere between the head and the score. And... The more you do it, the more you get to know it, the more you feel comfortable with the music. And, and with, with conducting, the, the difficult thing is, for conductors in this country, it's getting the opportunity to be in front of orchestras all the time. And that's really how you learn your trade. You don't 
you can practice in front of a mirror, you can practice the score a thousand times, you can practice beat patterns, patterns a thousand times, but you've got to be in front of the orchestra. That's where it really happens. It's like doing, imagine learning the violin by correspondence without a violin. So until you get in front of the orchestra, then you don't really know. And they're the great challenges. The next five, ten years will obviously hold lots of wonderful opportunities. Is another book part of your plans? <laughs> At this stage, no. Um, look, uh, Sybil Non said I should write children's books. Okay. So uh, I have three granddaughters, and they would be a perfect audience for children's books. But I don't know. I, I'm really keen about this music education thing at the moment because I want to see that through fully. Are you concerned about the incoming... I understand the national curriculum is not kind to any of the creative subjects. No. What's the plan there? The, the plan is to revise everything in the national curriculum, and that will happen. The draft is out, and teachers have responded significantly to the draft, and the responses have been overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly uh, in favour of a complete new curriculum. They find the current draft curriculum less than satisfactory. How hopeful are you that you'll see the kind of changes in music education that Hope we need? Hope is all we have, Rose. Hope is all we have. So I'm eternally hopeful. And finally, what's your advice to someone who's starting their own memoir or working through a book that describes their love of something that may be hard to put into words? Get a good editor. Excellent Get advice. Get an editor you trust and let them do the hard work. Thank you so much for joining today, Richard. Pleasure. You've been listening to the team from the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online at writerscentre.com.au and discover details about our courses, seminars and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.